connection with Lord's Day 24, which is the, the Lord's Day that we'll be focusing on, and the topic there is concerning our works and the place that our works, our, our good deeds have in our salvation. And for that, then, we'll read from, first from Galatians 3, verses 1 through 14. Galatians 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs, who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So far from Galatians 3, just turn a page forward now to Galatians 5. And there we will read verses 1 through 6. Galatians 5 verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obliged to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So far, the Word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 119 concerning the law, uh, stanza 66. Every Sunday in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of the Christian faith, and we take that as our starting point to investigate the doctrines of Christianity. This week, we find ourselves in Lord's Day 24, that's on page 538 of your books of praise if you want to follow along. 
There, the question is, but why can our good works not be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of it? Because the righteousness which can stand before God's judgment must be absolutely perfect and in complete agreement with the law of God. Whereas even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. But do our good works earn nothing even though God promises to reward them in this life and the next? This reward is not earned, it is a gift of grace. Does this teaching not make people careless and wicked? No, it is impossible that those grafted into Christ by true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. So far, the Lord's Day. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, This Lord's Day, of course, builds on the previous Lord's Day, which we saw a couple of weeks ago, which explains that you are righteous in Christ on the basis of Christ's work alone and not on the basis of your own works. Indeed, not even on the basis of the the worthiness of your faith, not even the goodness or worthiness of your faith is what makes you right before God, but, but purely Christ alone. That's what we saw two weeks ago. Lord's Day 24 essentially is devoted to answering objections to that doctrine. Um, and there's, there's three main objections that you can see. The first is from conscience. That's in question and answer 62. Something in us feels like our good works ought to matter before God and, and that our salvation can't be free, that, that, that feels to us like it's not correct. And so that's the first objection. The second is from Scripture where God promises a reward for our works. And the third objection is from uh, experience in this life that many people who claim to believe grace also live careless and wicked lives. So those are the, the three objections that the Lord's Day works through, and that's what we'll be working through also then this afternoon. The first is, is probably the, the most difficult one to surmount, and that's the objection from conscience or perhaps from our, our inner convictions. There's a problem. We feel like... Our obedience ought to matter before God in terms of our salvation. All of us have this feeling to some extent or another that we feel like God is watching to see if we will obey and that God will respond accordingly. All of us struggle with, with that sort of feeling. We also feel like, on, on, a, on a more proud note, we feel like it's our obedience that sets us apart from other people that don't obey God and don't seek Him. And, and even if we're happy to admit that, yes, we do need God's grace, and, and we're happy to admit that God does, yes, take the initiative with us, still it feels correct to say that our obedience... Uh, even if it's by the, by the power of the Spirit, but it's still our obedience is what determines whether or not we are saved. We all feel that way to some degree or another. And what's correct about that feeling is that there is a correlation 
between obedience and salvation. Those who live ungodly lives will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not be saved. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So there is a correlation. Those who obey uh, correlate to those who are saved. There, there, There certainly is a correlation. And so the conclusion seems to be, and this is what many of us feel in our conscience, my obedience is what saves me. That's the basis for God's choice in saving me and not saving others. However, if that's what we believe, we lose the gospel. The gospel ceases to make any sense. If we're ultimately saved by our own obedience, then what do we need Christ's obedience for? And that's the dilemma then that this question comes up against. Why can't our obedience count towards our salvation, or at least towards a part of of our salvation and, and that that exception maybe maybe just a part that comes from a, a semi-Pelagian uh, teaching that's that's a Roman Catholic doctrine now now to make sure we're not uh, caricature making a caricature of, of Roman Catholics we ought to recognize Roman Catholics do say that our salvation is based on God's grace alone they do say that however. At the same time, they also insist that it is based also on our works. Now, you can figure that out in, in your heads how that works. But the, what they insist is that our works are not just evidence of our faith, but that our works actually produce and increase our right standing before God. That's a quote from the Council of Trent. And they condemn anyone that teaches otherwise. And so they say, yes, we're saved by God's grace, but your works do count towards your salvation. And many of us, because of that that problem with our conscience, we tend to agree with this. We say, yes, my works ought to count towards my salvation. And so then in in practice, we end up with salvation based partly on Christ and partly on our works. Now, to respond to that Roman Catholic teaching, it's certainly true that our works must be present in this life uh, if, if we are to be saved. James is very clear about that. Faith without works is dead, and dead faith will not save you. But it's a very different thing to say as they do that our works produce and increase our right standing before God. Because then immediately you're left with the question that everyone faces, how good is good enough? How good do you need to be to be saved? Even if your salvation is based only in part on your works, how good must those works be for your salvation to be effective? Paul encountered a similar thing when he dealt with the Galatian church. After, uh, so, so to introduce the letter to the Galatians, there's a, a brief greeting in chapter 1. And then in verse 6, Paul gets straight to the point with them. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are now turning to a different gospel. The, the, the gospel that they were turning to, or the so-called gospel, was this very idea that we are saved by Christ, on the basis of Christ, and on the basis of our keeping of the law. 
Uh, and in their case, it was especially the, the ritual elements of the law that, that are in focus here, like circumcision and the eating or not eating of certain foods, things of that, of that nature. And just as an aside, if, if you do believe in works righteousness or some degree of works righteousness, it inevitably goes this direction. You say, well, yes, my obedience matters, but then you reduce that obedience to a simple ritualistic law-keeping, keeping certain rituals instead of keeping the whole law. It's what the Lord Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for doing. He says, you, you tithe your mint and your dill and your cumin, and yet you ignore the weightier matters of the law. That's how works righteousness always automatically goes. It runs up against the fact of real life that we are desperate sinners unable to keep God's law. And so it will either run to Christ and forget this whole nonsense about our salvation being based on our law keeping, or it will redefine that obedience to something it's capable of doing, something more manageable like certain rituals. That's what the Galatian church was running into, this idea that you, you must keep these rituals in order to be saved, and your salvation will be based on them and on Christ. That same teaching is very evident in the Roman Catholic Church. For anyone who's looking at least at the Roman Catholic Church with their eyes open, you can see that this is how the average member lives. But it isn't only a Roman Catholic problem. It's a temptation for all of us because it's rooted in human pride. We want to hold on to our pride. We want to believe that part of the reason God loves us is because we are relatively good people. And the gospel of grace, undeserved grace in Christ, it shatters that pride. It offends that pride. And so all of us, to some degree or another, deal with this temptation to hold on a little bit to our pride and say, yes, but I do do a pretty good job of keeping the law. And that counts before God as well. And so if we're unwilling to lay down our pride and accept the fact that we are desperate sinners, weak and no better than anyone else, if we're not willing to come to terms with that, then we inevitably end up reducing our obedience to simple ritualistic services. So even we who are not Roman Catholic, we deal with this kind of temptation. We justify ourselves, even if it's just in our minds or even just in our hearts, in our, in our feelings, uh, we, we justify ourselves by pointing to laws and rituals that we're able to keep and ignore the ones that we don't keep. And so we say things or we think things like, yes, but I do go to church twice a Sunday and, and, and I do that every week. And that's good. We should. But do you now live out what you hear on Sunday, the rest of your week? That's the, the weightier matter of the law. Or, I, I, I read my Bible every day. That must count for something before God. Well, good, we should read our Bibles every day. But do we do what it says all of the time? That's the weightier matter of the law. Or what about the rest of God's law? How are we when dealing with the lust in our hearts? Or how, how are we with dealing with the anger in our hearts? Or do we ever feel anger towards others whom God has blessed in ways that we haven't been blessed? There's a word for that. It's called covetousness. How do we deal with that? How are we with honoring our father and mother? 
How are we with speaking the truth? And what about the greater commandments? To love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. How are we with those? This is what an honest look at the law does for us. It takes us away from this, well, I'm a fairly obedient person because I keep this and this ritual to how do I deal with the weightier matters of the law? If we base our salvation on our works, we will inevitably reduce obedience to rituals. Christ calls us to look at the whole law, and if we do so, we, we will flee to him and rest in him alone. So Paul warns in, in Galatians, Paul warns the Galatians very seriously about this temptation. If you look at what we read from Galatians 3 verse 10, he says, All who rely on the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things that are written in the law and do them. In other words, if you want to base your obedience on the law, then you have to take the whole law and you are under a curse because you know that you do not keep the whole law. That's his point also in Galatians 5 verse 2. He says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, you can replace that with any other ritual that you want to add there, if you accept that, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is then obligated to keep the whole law. And then you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. The point is, it's one or the other. If you want to justify yourself by your law-keeping, then take the whole law as God has written it. Take it as it stands. Either you're saved by your obedience, and you know you're not, or you are saved by Christ's obedience. Either, if you're not willing to accept Christ's obedience and lay down your pride and acknowledge that you are a wretched sinner in need of His grace, if you're not willing to do that and you want to find some way to base your salvation or, your, or God's favor for you on your law-keeping, then good luck, you're on your own entirely. It's one or the other. Instead, look at what Paul says in the very next verse in in Galatians 5, uh, verse 5. In in contrast to that hopeless approach of basing our salvation on works, Paul says in verse 5, Instead, through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We wait for the hope of righteousness. In other words, we know that righteousness is coming from outside of ourselves. It's the same thing that we've been seeing in in Philippians as we've been going through Philippians. Uh, A couple weeks ago, we saw how, how Paul says, For Christ's sake I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. As long as we live our lives believing that God's favor towards us is based even in part on our performance, to whatever degree we lose the entire gospel. 
There, there's this uh, wonderful quote from one of John Bunyan's books, and he, he tells of a time when he was tormented with this uncertainty about his standing before God. And even though he knew the gospel, he understood that our salvation is based on, on Christ's work and not our own. And yet still he found himself tormented with the question, does God love me? And he says, one day the reality settled into him. He says, one day as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness, so that whatever I was or or wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could never say of me that he lacks my righteousness, for it was right there in front of him. I saw also that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is the gospel, and this is what Paul means by saying we wait for the hope of righteousness. It comes to us from outside of us entirely. It's not, we're not any more righteous on a good day or any less righteous on a bad day before God. God receives us as righteous by looking at Christ. And Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so Paul says in, in verse 6, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything but only faith. Now, you notice he does say faith working through love. Uh, We are saved by faith alone, but as Martin Luther would often say, that faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by works of love. And that's the point that Paul makes there. Uh, Neither circumcision nor nor uncircumcision counts for anything except faith, but that faith will be working through love. Now, to emphasize this point, some people sometimes talk about uh, obedient faith. They, they say, yes, we're saved, but we're saved by obedient faith. And there's nothing wrong with that expression as such. It's, it's theologically correct. It's the same point that Paul's making. The faith that saves us will be working in love. It will be obedient but, it, but using that terminology can very easily give the wrong idea that it's still our obedience that saves us. And, and that doctrine we must very clearly reject. If it's our obedience that saves us, then it isn't Christ, and it isn't our faith. And in that case, we are lost. So Paul's point is that faith is what saves us, faith in Christ, and that faith works through love. So what spurs me on in my righteousness? If you were to ask Paul that question, what spurs him on? It isn't to earn his right standing before God. That's his point in verse 5. It doesn't come through his working. Instead, what spurs him on to righteousness is the love that flows out of faith. So that's the answer then to the first objection. Can our works at least partly be the basis of our salvation? Scripture says very clearly, no, they cannot. We lose our salvation entirely. The second objection comes from Scripture itself, where there are a number of passages in Scripture where God seems to say He rewards our good works. A good example would be from 
uh, Romans 1, if you want to turn there, you're welcome to. Uh, Romans 1, verse 6. Romans 1, verse 6, where... Excuse me, I might be in the wrong place. Um, Romans 2, verse 6 is the right place. Uh, Paul says, God will render to everyone according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but unrighteousness, there will, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And so he seems to be saying God will reward those who do good and God will punish those who do bad. But now look at the very next verse, verse 12 of Romans 2. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So what's Paul's point in Romans 2, verse 6 through 11? Yes, God will reward those who do good And God will punish those who do evil. And guess what? You do evil, and so do all of us. Those who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. Those who sin under the law will perish under the law. And that's the point that he makes in the rest of chapter 2 and 3. If you look at chapter 3, verse 19... He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So, yes, there are a number of passages where God promises to reward good works and punish evil. And and certainly the way Moses set up the law seems to communicate that as well. If you do good, God will bless you. If you do evil, God will curse you. But all of us do evil. And that's why we need God's grace in the first place. Now, there are other examples that, that don't so much speak to, to our salvation as such. Um, first, let me go to Revelation 22, verse 12, where, where the Lord Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Now, that seems to be saying that, that God will, Jesus Christ will reward those who did good again and those will punish those who do evil. But the call there is a call to repentance and faith. It's not a call to start obeying the law more fervently. It's a call that comes in the context of the gospel. The verses there in light of the gospel which came right before it. It's there to drive us to the gospel. Jesus warns us, I'm coming to bring my recompense. And the call is therefore, repent and believe before it's too late. The call is not start getting more serious about your law keeping, otherwise you're going to be in trouble. The law is repent and believe. Uh, or, the, or the command is repent and believe. There are other promises also where God promises to, to reward our, our good works. You might think of uh, Matthew 5, verse 12. This is the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord Jesus says, 
Rejoice and be glad, speaking of those who, who are persecuted. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Or Matthew 6, verse, verse 3. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So there is, very clearly, a reward for Christians that comes as a result of their works. That, that's very clear in Scripture. But remember also the parable that Jesus told of, of laborers working for their master. And, and he says this in Luke 17, verse 10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, you must say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. Even if we do all that God commands us, that is nothing more than our duty. It doesn't earn us anything beyond that. Now, God does reward us. Jesus is clear. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. But this is the point then that the Catechism makes. That reward is not earned. It's a gift of grace. We will be rewarded. Those of us who, who, who do give in secret and those of us who are persecuted will have special rewards. We don't know exactly what the nature of those rewards are, but Jesus does very clearly promise rewards for our works. But those rewards above and beyond the, the salvation that we have in Christ they're a gift of grace. We don't earn those rewards from God. And, and more to the, to the point then concerning this, this question of our, our works and our salvation, none of these rewards speak to how guilty sinners make themselves right with God. Those promises of rewards are for people who are already made right with God. That's not what, so, so those texts are not speaking of how to be made right with God. It's speaking of God's grace towards those who are already made right with Him. Now, it, it's true, there, there, there's one other verse I'd like to deal with. It is true that you can speak of salvation as a reward for our faith. And the verse I'm thinking of is 2 Timothy 4. Uh, verse 7, and many, many people who do advocate a form of wor- works righteousness would uh, use this verse to defend that position. 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, Paul says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul talks about this crown of righteousness that God rewards to those who, who, who love uh, the appearing of Christ. But there too, Paul would be the first to say that he's not speaking about a reward that's earned. It's still a reward that's a gift of grace. And when he speaks of it being awarded, it's it's a reward that comes as a result of faith, not a reward that is earned by faith. Yes, our salvation is the result of a life of faith. If we believe in Christ, we will be saved. You can see a, a a cause and effect uh, there. So you can speak of that salvation as an awarding or a reward for that faith. But it's not to say that the faith earns the salvation. It's simply what must be there for that salvation to, to occur. Uh, 
So that's why the Catechism does say it's very brief in its response, but it's very correct. That reward is not earned. It's a gift of grace. Finally, there's, there's one final objection, and that's the objection from experience. It's very hard to escape this claim. If our good works don't earn us anything, what's to stop us from living however we want? This is called antinomianism, which, which simply means living as if there is no law or living against the law. And, and this is a legitimate concern. People sometimes say, you know, the minister only ever preaches grace, and meanwhile the young people are out drinking themselves into a heap every Friday night. Could it be that maybe we've got this gospel wrong if that's the result that we're getting? Uh, This is maybe a charge that hits a little closer to home. Well, the first thing we need to recognize is that this this clearly is not only a Canarsi objection or or an objection that you'd find within the Canarsi because Paul had the same response to his preaching of the gospel of grace. In Galatians 5, verse 11, he says, that's the main reason I'm being persecuted because the Jews believed that that preaching a gospel of grace would lead to uh, lawlessness. It's one of the, the, the greatest reasons that the Jews of his day hated Christianity and hated Paul's gospel, because they believed if, if people think that, that we're not saved by our works, then they're going to stop working, and God's law is going to be broken. That's, you see that also in Romans 3, verse 8. Paul acknowledges that there are people accusing him of teaching that, that we can now live however we want. It comes back again in Romans 6, verse 15. So Paul was constantly dealing with that objection. People who hated his gospel because they believed it led to lawlessness. So, it should be an indicator to us that we've rightly understood Paul's gospel if people are accusing us of saying this. If no one accuses us of of preaching a gospel that could lead to lawlessness, then we're probably not preaching the same gospel that Paul was preaching because they certainly accused him of preaching such a gospel. Now, of course... None of that is to make any excuses for the lawlessness. If there is drunkenness and immorality in our churches, it does mean there's a problem with how the gospel is being heard and and applied. But the solution is certainly not to stop preaching the gospel of grace in Christ. So is there any truth to this accusation that that, uh, preaching God's grace and preaching salvation by faith alone will lead to lawlessness? The Catechism says, no, there's no truth to that accusation at all. It's impossible that those who are grafted into Christ by true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. It's the same thing that Paul said in Galatians 5, uh, verse, I believe, 6, where he says, none of these things count for anything, only faith working through love. True faith will work through love. And so one thing that that should be made clear, when there is immorality in our churches or drunkenness or any other lawlessness, the solution is not 
to stop emphasizing grace. Sometimes people say that, you know, the problem is that the minister just overemphasizes grace, as if all that we need is just a little more moderation when it comes to God's grace. Well, that, that would be, of course, a crazy response. How do you moderate the preaching of grace? Do you preach half grace or half works or half gospel? That's not at all how Paul responds. Instead, Paul says, Galatians 5, verse 13, You were called to freedom, brothers, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Instead, through love, serve one another. That's the biblical response. If there is true faith uh, in Christ, then you will use that faith as an opportunity to serve through love. Uh, And indeed, he, he goes on in verse 16, he says, I say, walk by the Spirit instead of by the law, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, that does not mean that there's, there's no room for warnings. There are warnings in Scripture, and we ought to preach those warnings loud and clear. When people are gratifying the desires of the flesh, they need to be warned. So you look even at Galatians 5, verse 19. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, lists a long, long list of, of the works of the flesh. And he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the warnings do need to be heard loud and clear. Now, it leaves us with the question, then, how do we put all these things together? If we're saved by grace, what place do the warnings have? How can, in other words, how can we put this all together and understand it in such a way that we don't end up undermining the gospel of grace in, in Christ? Well, Paul explains it in, in verses 24 to, to 25 of, of Galatians 5, and we should read those verses together. Galatians 5, verse 24. He says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have, notice the past tense, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Here's the point then. If there is immorality and drunkenness and other lawlessness, it is evidence, indeed proof, that one has not yet belonged to Christ Jesus and crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And that's the biblical response to lawlessness among uh, Christians or within the church when, when you encounter that within the church. Uh, there's no question that there is lawlessness within our churches. And it's fair to say that that's partly the result of preaching that hasn't emphasized that warning. We, we share a measure of guilt in that, both as, as preachers and as elders, and indeed as, especially as parents. But the solution, as preachers, elders, parents, etc., is not to stop preaching the gospel as if it's the fault of the gospel, but to warn people and to call people to prove that they indeed belong to Christ. That's the response that Paul gives. That's the same response that James gives as well. It says, faith that's without works is dead. Prove the living, uh, prove the life of your faith. 
And so we should call people to prove that they do indeed belong to Christ. If they do, they're going to be putting to death the works of the flesh. If they're not putting those to death, then their faith, if they claim to have any at all, is a lie, and they do not belong to Christ. And that warning needs to be heard loud and clear in our churches. The the Catechism uses this image of a, a branch being grafted onto a tree. It's a It's a biblical metaphor that comes up several times. Jesus says it himself, uh, John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Uh, It's what Christ also taught in Matthew 7 on the Sermon on the Mount, that a, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. You can tell a tree by its fruits. That needs to be understood concerning our faith. If there's no fruits, then there is no faith. It's, it's faith, then, that ties me to Christ's righteousness. It's faith by which I hold on to Christ and am saved. And such faith always works through love. The love is the proof of the genuineness of that faith. And, and so my love and obedience to God are my proof of being tied to Christ. It's an imperfect proof. It's a proof that's filled with holes and failures. And yet that faith is alive and shows itself alive. And we ought to demand that of our youth, especially as parents of our children. And so you see that Peter actually responds this way as well. He says in Second Peter 1, Make your calling and election sure. It's a strange expression because our election is something that God did in eternity past. How can we make it sure? But his point is, prove to yourself and to others that you are elect by demonstrating the fruits of that election. That's why James then also says, faith without works is dead. Now that warning needs to be heard, but it cannot be taught, it must not be taught, without also the gospel. And we should never stop preaching the gospel and making it heard in our churches for fear of being accused of of leading to lawlessness. Paul endured the same accusation for preaching the same gospel. Now, it's not a natural instinct for us when we encounter lawlessness. It's not a natural instinct for us as, as minister nor as elders to offer God's grace in the face of, of lawlessness and sin. Our natural response and instinct is to want to come down hard with the law. But God's response was to bring us grace through Christ. And that needs to be the gospel that's heard also in our churches. The gospel needs to be pure and simple and plain. If you turn from your sins to Christ and you confess your sins and you embrace Christ as, as your salvation and you give yourself to him, you will be saved with no questions about it. There's no mysterious experiential dimension that you have to sit around and hope that God will give you for you to feel sure about uh, your salvation. 
the, the promise is very plain and simple. All whom the Father gives will come to me, says Jesus in John 14, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. How do you know that the Father has made you belong to Christ? Because you see yourself coming to Christ. And if you come to Christ, then rest assured, he will never cast you out. That promise of the gospel needs to remain pure and simple and and it should never be undermined, even for the sake of spurring people on to obedience. That promise is the promise of the gospel that we need ourselves every day. So it's, it's good to understand then, it's necessary to understand, it's the gospel that changes our lives, not the preaching of the law. We don't change first, and then, you know, once we've successfully defeated our sin, then we embrace the gospel, because we will never, ever win against our sin. We will either lie to ourselves that we've succeeded when we haven't, or we will despair and give up altogether. Change comes as a result of the gospel, and if we want to see change, the gospel needs to be heard loud and clear. It's knowing that my righteousness is not here in me, but there with Christ. That's what frees me to live for Christ and to live a life of gratitude. The reality is the more I grow in holiness, the more I'm going to see how how far I have yet to grow. A performance-based gospel will do me no good at all. We must cling to Christ first, and only from that gospel point of view can we ever wage war on sin successfully. So let me quote... uh, one final verse and close on this. First John 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He, our Lord, is pure. Amen. Let's respond by singing together from Psalm 130, stanzas 2 and 3.